You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Have you noticed that our world is getting more and more intense? The rain looks like it's staying somewhat intense out there. I don't know about you, but 9 a.m. came in. They were dripping, soaking wet. They're like, you know, it was all over their clothes. They were shaking it off. How many of you got wet on your way in? Okay, see, it's lightening up already. Now, here's what I want to do. Um, you know, I, I was talking with uh, my sons yesterday. We, uh, I love my boys, and we do what's called man time on Saturdays. And so we go out, and we get a little Starbucks, and we have a little conversation, and just a little Devo time, and just time to relate and be with the boys. And my wife stays at home, and when the boys, when we come home later on, she's like, so what'd you guys do? And we say, man stuff. Like, we never tell her, like, what we actually actually did because uh, it's man time. And it's been sacred ever since my boys were little, just a routine in my week to make sure I'm just having this intentional time uh, with the boys. But while I was out with them yesterday, I, I asked them to uh, remember a time uh, when, when they cried really hard or really ugly. How many of you, by show of hands, how many of you are ugly criers? Come on, be honest. Yeah, all right. You know, the makeup goes, your clothes are all wet. It's just right. It's awful, right? And, and I was thinking back, as I was talking to my boys, I was thinking back to like, you know, I, I was in fifth grade and I was racing across the jungle gym with my friend Brent. And, uh, and I went up this long thing, it was like a ladder, and I got to the top and I had the feet on both rail, but I had a rail between my legs and they were like six feet long, we're about six feet up in the air. And I was just gonna, I was just gonna pick up my back leg over the top and jump because I was gonna win the race, right? So I pick my back leg up, but as I do it, this leg slips off the railing that it was holding onto. It tips me, you know, like that. I fall down, I break my arm, and I cry because I lost the race, you know? <laughs> yeah, it hurt a little bit. It fractured it. It's not like, you know, a compound fracture, bone sticking everywhere or anything. But it was, you know, I just, I hated that I lost the race and, and, and I cried. And as I was talking to my boys uh, yesterday, I said, well, tell, tell me a time when, you know, when you cried. And, and all of them brought up the time when my wife, we were on our way up to Yosemite and eventually to Mammoth. Uh, from San Francisco, and on the way, my wife got such an intense migraine that she was incoherent, was throwing up, dehydrated, um, just, it was brutal, and there's nowhere to stop. Like, we are out in the boonies on our way up to Groveland, you know what I'm talking about, really windy road, all the way up into Yosemite, it's just brutal, there's no cell phone coverage, we're just trying to get help, and every two minutes, I'm having to pull over because she's getting sick again and and she's just unbuckling and trying to open the door while we're driving just doesn't even know what's going on and and we were literally crying in our car and cr shouting out to God God that like we just need help right now we can't call anybody there's no way we can do we just need we need help right now and we finally made it up into Groveland to a fire uh, station up there and an ambulance was in town put Heather in the ambulance went back down to Sonora and she got uh, in the hospital and we cried you know on the way down there because now she's at least getting some care, but we're not out of the woods yet. And we're just having that like, you know, a little bit of relief, but it's like if somebody, the ambulance comes to your house and picks up the person in distress and they leave you, you still have that cry, but you may not be out of the woods yet. And we were just crying and it would have been just a most intense kind of, you know, guttural, ugly kind of cry, just screaming out to God. And maybe for some of you, that was you. You remember crying. You remember wailing. You remember actually 
you know, the wailing just rising up from your soul. Maybe you're wailing because you were at the end of your rope or you were wailing because you needed help or there was no hope or as far as you could see, you're going to continue to live with addiction in your life or pain in your life or loss in your life or bitterness in your life. And you just are wailing out to God. It just rises up within you and you can't help it and you wish you didn't have to deal with it at that moment, but it just sneaks up on you and you're wailing out, crying out. And then it was there in that moment that God heard you, that his compassion was engaged for where you were at and begins to hear you and walk with you through that season. He helped you. He began to walk you in the process of cleaning you up or putting you back on a path of stability. It's there when, when God does step in and help and and then we begin to walk in obedience and faithfulness to him and, and we begin to see that he might have gotten for your situation, your finances or your job in order. He may have gotten your circumstances to settle down, your relationships to be made right. And you're no longer in crisis. And then the craziest thing happens to us because we're no longer in crisis and then all of a sudden we do what most humans do and that is we begin to become self-sufficient again and we forget God. And we begin again to rely on ourselves because we just don't have that felt need. We're not crying anymore. We've like cleaned up. We put our makeup back on. We've gotten our, our thing back together. And we become self-sufficient and we forget God and inevitably then we forget those God loves who are in need. God hears the cries of people. He's also in tuned, his ears listens different than yours and mine. His ears attuned to injustices that you and I might overlook, losses that we might ignore, pain that we conceal, suffering that we detach ourselves from. God hears those things. So James tells us today, like he tells the Jewish readers of his book, of the book of James in the New Testament, to listen up. James gives the strongest rebuke in the next portion of this chapter that he does in the entire book. And if you will, open your Bible with me to James chapter 5. He says, now listen, in other words, listen up, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not even opposing you. James comes along and tells these readers, listen, there's something wrong going on here. That you and I make judgments in our head that result to things that we own in our heart and then it leaks out in our actions. And for them, one of their actions was this, that they would own in their head, they would own it in their heart, and it would leak out through their tongue because the tongue is a tattletale and it tells on the heart. And then they would get in fights and quarrels with one another. Then you and I, we become presumptuous as we make plans for the future. And now James is saying, and not only that, instead of forgetting God and just planning your future, because you've forgotten God, 
You now are opposing the people who aren't in opposition to you. You don't have a heart or a mind for those who God loves. And he's basically saying, the gardeners who mowed your field, you're becoming rich by not paying them. He gives a very direct answer to say, listen, you've become so self-absorbed. You begin to think only of you and your life. And so he basically comes to them and says, cry. Don't just like write a check and make it right. He says, cry. The issue's not in your checkbook. The issue's in your heart. And so he uses this phrase. He says, weep and wail. It's a Greek word called kaleo, and it means weeping for the dead. It means shame. It means remorse. It's the kind of weeping that happens when you and I get to a broken point to realize just how ugly our sin is. And we break down and we weep. It's not a pretty cry. It's an ugly cry. And he's saying, turn your self-sufficiency into an ugly cry because it's revealing this thing that's going on the outside is revealing that you are hoarding on the outside your resources to be all about you. And he's saying, cry about it. You know, it's interesting. We, when we think of a rich place in the world, we might think of like Saudi Arabia, right? So I got a picture here. I want to show you this picture here. You might think of this. You got, you got the sheik with his cheetah as a pet. Uh, you've got your gold car or you've got your diamond encrusted Mercedes, right? Then you go, now those, those people, those people, they are rich. And then I go to India and I'm meeting with these little kids and I take a picture on my smartphone and, and they want to see it. And then they want to see all the pictures on my phone. I don't let them. You want to know Why? Because if they start to flip through the pictures on my phone, they're going to realize all of a sudden that my garage is nicer than the house they live in. They can't fathom living in a place like that. They got windows cut out in their house with bars in it, but no glass. Because it's a monsoon, you know, equatorial cold, uh, you know, area. It's really hot all the time but they can't imagine living in something as nice as you or my garage. And in America, the garage becomes a place that just reveals how much we're hoarding. And when the garage gets too full, we have to go to get external storage, right? And he says, listen, those things begin to cry out against us. I mean, I just gotta be honest with you. We've grown up in a first world culture. And a first world culture basically says, we the people, we the people, we deserve to be entitled. We deserve that we work hard for this and this is the way our country works. And so we need to live like the people in our, our culture and in our country. And so we deserve to be like this. We deserve the peace we experience. We deserve the entitlement we experience. We deserve the conveniences we experience. And we deserve the government or someone else to bail us out if our standard of living drops. But let me just ask you for a minute. This morning, by way of discussion, is the American standard of living up for discussion or not? Like if Jesus were to meet with you and say, hey, uh, you know, Sunday morning, I want to meet with you one-on-one, -on -one, let's grab coffee. And you're like, great. And you're like, well, God, it's kind of weird to meet with God, so I want to know what the agenda is. Because I know ahead of time what we're going to talk about. I want to make sure I say the right things, you know, do the right things. So, so God lays out the agenda, and the agenda, top of the agenda just says, you know, the American dream. Is that up for discussion or not? 
Is the American regular standard of living up for discussion or not? Or would you bounce? Would you be like, I'm not going to coffee, not going to show up, it's not going to happen. Is that up for discussion or not? The gospel is the great equalizer. That we are not attached to the kingdom of America, but we are attached to the kingdom of heaven. And James is saying, as the kingdom of heaven has come, it ought to so transform us that it works itself out in other areas of our lives. That it is so much a part of who we are being crafted and becoming that it shows up and reveals itself in what we do. So I don't just hoard my wealth at the expense of people who I owe wealth to. I don't just forget people that God cares about. But it begins to change my character and generosity intensifies. It begins to look really good on me. But we need to understand a few things. If you're taking notes today, we've got to understand, first of all, possessions, according to this passage and other passages of Scripture, are actually spiritual. Our possessions, our treasure, our talents, our time, it's actually, we are, we are stewards that we do stewardship with what we have in our living days because our living is all too short. But we are given those things for a season and when we die, we don't take them with us. We are stewards of time and treasure and talents. But possessions are spiritual. In verses one through three, it actually says, your corroded surplus cries out. And the word there is this, that the word there of the corroded surplus crying out is a word called crodzo, and what it means is that's the word that they would use as the sound that demons make when they would be cast out of people. That when a demon is cast out of a person, they come out with a shriek and a cry. It is a guttural just shriek and crying out when Jesus would come and cast out a demon and the demon would come out with a shout. That's the word crodzo. And it's saying our possessions, our surplus, our hoarding, those things cry out to God because we are hoarding them to ourselves at the expense of other believers around the world who are in need. That the gospel is a great equalizer. That under the gospel, there's not male and female or Hebrew or slave. There's not free person or slave. There shouldn't be rich or poor. But that the gospel is the equalizer. And one of the markers of the early church was that they were just so radically generous. It was a beautiful thing that they would be known by their generosity because it was so countercultural. But it's weird for me to think about that. Our, our possessions and our bank accounts cry out to God. Blood cries out to God. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis, the blood cries out. In Revelation, Jesus reveals that the blood of the martyrs, those who are being killed for their faith, who they put their faith in Christ, and around the world, they're being killed, and it happens today all the time. It's not just some random person put in a cage and lit a fire, but that on a daily basis around the world, people are being killed because of the gospel and it says that that blood that falls out on the ground, the blood in Revelation is crying out to God, saying, God, an injustice has occurred. How long? How long? How long until you judge? Because he's the one and only judge. Blood cries out. Our possessions cry out. Hoarded wealth cries out. Why? Because life is 
spiritual, including our possessions. If you've ever had the chance to go to the Hawaiian Islands, the people who live there, irrespective of their race or their background, the people who live there really look at everything there, that the land and the sea and it has a spiritual component to it. They see the energy of a tsunami sometimes. They see the waves come and go. They see a volcano that erupts and, and that it's, the lava is coming out. And they see the, the jungle grow and they see the rains come and go and they see beautiful sunsets. And in everything, they just, they're uniquely, probably more so than any state in our nation, they are uniquely attuned to the spiritual dynamic of the area in which they live. In the same way, we don't worship rocks and the creation. We appreciate the creation, but all that creation came from the act, the spoken act of a creator who spoke into creation all the elements. So we don't look at rocks and crystals and go, oh, I'm going to get energy from rocks and crystals. We're not new age. We don't, we don't believe or attribute that. We say the beauty that they have, anything that's there, we say comes from the creator himself. The creation reveals the creator, but our world gets it confused and we begin to bow down and worship the creation as saying it has some, the creation has something spiritual and God is saying, no, listen, there is one judge and there's one source of all that and what happens with these things cries out to me. And so we should care about the environment and we should care about the poor believer some of us say, well, come on, Dave. I mean, honestly, like I work hard for my money. Go ahead. You can throw that slide up there. I took this picture of a license plate. I didn't show you the whole car. Let's just say it was a really nice car, all right? I came out of a, a meeting and I saw this and I was like, that is classic. I had to take a picture of the person's license plate. You know, I work for it. And of course, it's a USC license plate frame, right? Yeah, I, I grew up with USC season tickets. I, I mean, my dad went to USC. My brother went to USC uh, law school. And I mean, they just, you know, I grew up with going to USC football games. And, and it's just, isn't that the nature of our culture? Come on, I work for it. Like, the reason I'm driving this really nice car is because I work for it. But in James' day, what was happening is that the people who worked for it weren't even getting what was owed them. That believers were withholding, rich believers were withholding wages even that they owed to those who had mowed their fields. And some of us would say, listen, you know, I work hard for the money again. You don't understand, Dave, you don't understand my, my needs. In fact, most people who take uh, Financial Peace University have this grieving, aha moment that they have fattened themselves like cattle in the day of slaughter, scripture would say, I, I have, I've indulged myself on things that just don't matter. And our culture would say, don't give me that, man. I mean, listen, I, I can't. I deserve, I work hard for this money. Let other countries fix their own problems. Let poor people elsewhere fix their own deal because I got enough needs of my own. And they say, I can't, I can't help them because I need to pay for my cable TV. I need to pay for my $200 jeans, my rims, my makeover, my ride, my energy drinks, my therapy. I need to pay for my timeshare. I need to pay for my wine tasting. Yes, I went there. And I need to pay for my indulgences. Right? So what does James say? He says, the gospel's a great equalizer. We're making judgments in here that work themselves out in the way that we use and leverage our resources. And some of these believers have gotten to the point where they were leveraging all their resources to themselves. And he's saying, repent, weep, 
cry. You have every excuse under the sun why not to honor God with the first. You have every excuse under the sun why not to care for the people God loves. And he's saying, repent, come back to God. So what does he say? If you're taking notes today, he says, earn wealth honestly. Earning wealth honestly means that the way we earn wealth shouldn't oppress other people. What do we mean by that? That when you do your taxes, and you earn your refund, you should earn your refund honestly, that it should not oppress other people or take or steal from a nation. It means that when you and I have services rendered, that we should pay for those services, that we should work with our hands, not just earn on someone else's effort, but that we need to work for it. So we should work and earn wealth honestly. If you study gambling as an example, the whole gambling industry makes its bread and butter off the poor. We like to think, no, it's just open and available to everybody. But if you look at it, lotto retailers are eight to one in poverty neighborhoods than it is in your neighborhood. That promise, if I could just not work so much, but I could get rich quick, wouldn't that be great? That promise, that drive, that desire to just have things turn around like that is what the entire gambling industry is built on. And so sometimes if you and I gamble, we're actually enabling an industry that is built on the backs of the poor. So he's saying, don't cheat, don't steal in your earning. Now let me tell you something, I am not trying to bring guilt. Guilt is not helpful. But what I'm coming to grips with more and more is the amount of hoarding that happens even in my own life. We moved up here in 2009 from Southern California and I was appalled I was absolutely appalled at the amount of junk that I have accumulated over the years that should fit in one big old truck, but now has to take more than one big old truck. And I remember when all my possessions fit in my Honda. But what happens? Life happens. Now we're five. I was one. There's some accumulation with that, but honestly, in my heart, God began to break my heart, Dave. You are hauling a lot of the American ideal around with you. I'm speaking of the cry that's building in my own heart about ways that I have hoarded where generosity wasn't a character trait of my life. The word there is that weeping for the dead of your shame or of your remorse Christ followers earn wealth honestly. Why should we do that? We should earn wealth honestly so we can share with those in need. See, the Jewish people who are reading this know that when they worked their fields, they were to work all around their fields, but leave the corners. Don't collect all the stuff from the corners because poor people would come along and they would work, they would go and gather, they would glean from the corners where they didn't have enough to make it on their own. They would go and gather from that and then they would take it in and have enough to survive. So they would work with their hands, not just a handout, but they would go work and they would gather from it. But they were, in, in James' day, now they, they were completely saying, you're mowing the entire field and not only that, you're not paying the people who mowed your field. Christ followers, need to earn our wealth honestly. Why? We earn not so we can hoard? No. We're supposed to earn and have surplus so we can share with those in need that the great equalizing can happen. Not in some socialist or communist way, 
Because the heart of men still exists in those systems and corruption works through it like it does in free enterprise, right? But instead, the revealing of the heart was how we were treating other people. And so James says, be countercultural. Our culture teaches us through fear and with the lure of security to hoard our wealth, to keep it for ourselves, to put it away for that someday that we're not necessarily guaranteed. So we need to earn our wealth honestly. Secondly, we need to leverage our surplus for those who are oppressed. We collect. We collect things. Think of the collection. What do you collect? Some people collect books. Some people collect dolls. Some people collect movies. Some people collect uh, jewelry. Some people collect rocks. Some people collect all sorts. Think of what you collect for a minute. And of course, you collect it because it has some value. But I got to tell you something. Collection always has a lure. Even if you collected the entire set, you would now transfer and look for something else to collect. Why? Because hoarding is just built in our heart. And I got to tell you something, collection, collecting things is a hobby of those who have wealth. You go to another country, they're collecting like, I need food for today. They may collect, I need fire to build fuel to cook my dinner over. I'm trying to collect water. I'm trying to collect these things. Necessities for life. But what do we do? Collection just reveals that we live in a first world nation because that luxury doesn't exist in other places. But what if, what if we begin collecting our surplus? What if we begin selling off some of our collection? What if we began to collect in a way to share with others? What if you collected airline miles and you helped a missionary come back on furlough instead of spending it on your next vacation? What if you collected some things and sold them off and bought gift cards that you could send away to a person outside our country even who has basic necessity needs? What if you took the money you saved at Geico And leveraged it, not for a couple of Starbucks, but leveraged it for somebody who's in need. What if you supported a CSW, child sex worker, child in a village in India, who their lot in life is to be sold, to be abused, and then sold into sex slavery until they're age 20, at which point they're not even desirable anymore. What if you said, I could leverage surplus to change the course and direction of that child's life? What if you did a garage sale and used the proceeds to feed the hungry? Get motivated. We can help. And one of the things I love about our church, I love our church, and one of the things I love about our church is just how generous our church is that we work to feed the hungry, that we put shoes on kids in Title I schools, that we have homeless people spending the night up here and using the showers that we refuse to tear out of here to hoard our space for ourselves. No, we said, no, we'll leave the showers because there will be those who are in need. I love our church. But it's amazing that we begin to get creative when we begin to think about how we can help the poor. Why should we do that? We're always going to have poor people. Do you know that scriptures say that you'll never cure poverty completely? Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Always is a pretty big word. Pretty all-encompassing. 
But what did he say? Again, the way that you mow your fields, leave some for the poor. The way that the gospel becomes a great equalizer. That the early church was known for sharing their possessions with one another so that there were none who had need. How beautiful was that? And the difference was not so much what it does for the person that something gets shared with, but the difference is for what it does for our heart. Because hoarding's not healthy. Maybe you know an actual hoarder. Maybe you know somebody who, in their house, it's like hard to move through their house. They're a compulsive buyer. They just don't know. They just collect. They never throw anything away. And it's a health hazard for them in their cooking. It's a health hazard for them in what exists in their house. And you would look at that and say, that's not healthy for that person. And James is saying, cry, repent, because our hoarding is not healthy for us. Greed owns you and does something to your heart. So he says, repent. Well, how do we repent? Fortunately, in this situation, repent is active. It's through generosity because generosity breaks greed. Generosity breaks it. It's stewardship in having generosity. I mean, I'll be honest with you. We as American Christians have unbelievable surplus do you know that marketers love college students who make the excuse, well, I can't, I don't have any money, I'm a college student? They love that because the, the percentage degree of disposable uh, income for a college student usually trumps people in other age brackets. We just don't even know how to see things like that with clarity anymore. What happens to us? We forget God. We reveal our heart. My heart has forgotten God when I forget the people that God cares about and I forget the needs that they have. Because I just begin to think only of me. And we get in that centrifugal, that vortex that sucks us down and greed grabs a hold of us. But I gotta tell you, there are ways to meet the needs of those who are oppressed in our nation and in other nations. The widow, the orphan. I gotta tell you, we have modern day widows and orphans, single parents, single parent kids. We have modern day people that we can reach to, that we can care for. We have foster kids that we can care for. The refugee, the international person in your neighborhood. Isn't it so interesting to us that America was built by throwing its arms open wide and saying, send to me all you who are poor and needy, right? We just in, invited people into our nation to, to build our nation, but our nation was founded on godly principles. And so that generosity was a no brainer. And they say, this nation is so different from every other nation. Because it just throws open its arms open wide. But as we have shoved God out of our culture and the prosperity of our nation has tanked, who are the first people we turn to to get rid of? The refugee. The foreigner. We say, go back to your country. Let your country take care of you. We're just, we just need to take care of us. And it sounds like good stewardship, but let me be careful. I mean, the, the picture of immigration reform is a lot more complex than what I just painted. But help me understand this, that again, the nature of our culture is to take care of our own at the expense of those who are brutalized, at the expense of those who are oppressed, at the expense of those who live in poverty around our world. James says that we should cry out because our hoarding cries out against God nonstop. And if we don't change, our hoarding is going to continue to cry out. Our hoarding cries out to God. It tells on our heart. So we weep and we care for poor believers. 
Think about it. As Americans, we were fatter, we're less happy, we're more medicated, and as a result, we're less motivated to help others. Why? It's like we're the cattle eating the grass. We're fattening ourselves even though it's slaughter day. It's a picture of a cow just eating the grass even though that's the day it's going to get cut up into steaks and sold at Costco. That this is what we do by hoarding all of our wealth to ourselves. So we reveal that we've forgotten God when we ignore people's needs that God cares about. Now, let me tell you something. We can do good things. We can do good actions out of guilt or out of compliance. And let me just tell you, again, guilt is not helpful. Compliance really isn't helpful. We can do good things by complying, right? Someone's like, hey, would you really donate to this cause? You're like, yeah, I feel obligated. Compliance is like obligatory. I, I feel like I just kind of have to, so I just do it. But that doesn't reveal the heart, right? Generosity comes out of the heart. Generosity says, I have a right view of myself before a right view of God and his kingdom. And I have a right view of my identity in Christ. And out of that, God, you're going to come along and help me that when I get greedy, you're going to break it through generosity. And now in my heart, I begin to dream and I begin to think, God, what would you have me do to bless someone, another believer who's in a poverty situation? What can I do? And we begin to see possessions different. And we begin to see people different. And we begin to love people and use things, not use people to love things. This is how you remember God. How do I reveal that, God, I really remember you? Well, how do you do it? You bless those who need it the most, just in the same way that God's generosity through his first and best, his son, Jesus Christ, giving his life for our sin so that we could have eternal life where we never have to worry about any provision ever again was from him. He met us in our need when we needed it the most. Like the way Sun Grove Church helped homeless people and the orphans and the poorest of the poor in India and the hungry who find themselves on the Elk Grove, dependent on the Elk Grove Food Bank, the ways that you step up with the shoe drive and mentoring kids who are without dads. In fact, a lot of those families are laboring families who go around mowing the fields and working in the agricultural areas near us. And you step up and say, I'll mentor that kid. I'll help out with them to mentor a young adult to sponsor sex trafficked children in India. When you tithe and you support, you support local ministries we do here and global ministries around the world. Say, I don't know people in a foreign country. Time to go on a mission trip. I don't know people in a foreign country. When you give at Sun Grove Church, we tithe as a church, and that missions money goes to bless those around the world. I have to go on a mission trip. I gotta leave America every now and then because I've gotta get America out of me. Some of your objections to a mission trip is not travel. If you were given the opportunity to go to the Greek Isles, you would go. You would endure all that nasty travel. You would put up with all the inconveniences because you're going on vacation. Sometimes the issue of a mission trip is in our heart. Why? Because God might meddle with me. He might mess with my hoarding. Here's one thing I know. I don't know a lot of things medically, but here's one thing I know. Fat hearts are not healthy hearts. They're not strong hearts. And, and literally the phrase there that James uses he, about the cattle, he says basically, you are fattening your hearts for the day of slaughter. That's the actual Greek phrase. Fatten your hearts 
for the day of slaughter. In other words, you got plenty for all your meat and you got plenty for the rest of you, but now the only place your body has to build it up is on the inside around your heart, and that can't be a strong heart or a healthy heart. It just can't. And those who hoard, irrespective of their body shape, those who hoard basically are saying, my heart has become unhealthy. But James is not just saying that those who hoard have an unhealthy heart. James is saying that there are poverty-stricken people who in a way don't have strong hearts. They've got toxic hearts. And so he addresses a second audience. Look with me at James 5, 7. Be patient. Literally the phrase there is not be patient. It is strengthen your hearts, brothers and sisters. In other words, get a strong heart until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Well, what were the poor people doing? What were the poor people doing that James is now addressing? He's saying, that's the heart of the rich who are hoarding, but let's look at your hearts. And the first thing he says this is that oppression and life are both temporary. You be patient. Ultimate provision comes from God. When you're in a tough circumstance, in a tough place, don't just look for the quick fix. That God is saying, be patient, wait on me, persevere, endure it. First thing he says is, don't seek revenge. Don't seek revenge. The nature was that we've been offended, and so now we're going to... Turn the offense. Don't seek revenge, but let God be the judge. Instead of you being the judge, let God be the judge. But what were they doing? On the inside, they were saying, I am judge, jury, and I will in, be the enforcer. And he's saying, no, no, there is one judge, there is one lawgiver, and it is the Lord. Secondly, he says, stop grumbling. And the reason he says that is because grumbling was going on. In fact, there was probably a lot of it. You are in your oppression. You are in your poverty. You are grumbling. You have a, a, the heart of a victim, not the heart of one who knows God and is an overcomer. You are grumbling. So he's saying, stop the grumbling. Don't give in to that. And 30 says, stop swearing. What does he mean? That they were making oaths. Instead of letting their yes be yes and their no be no, but the Christian should be of such integrity that there's no confirmation needed beyond a yes or a no. And that integrity stands as a witness against the rich oppressor's dishonesty. So here's the thing. The rich oppressor's going to go, why? Why should I do anything? I haven't really done that. No, no, they're lying to you. But the poor person saying, we mowed the fields, we did the work, and they didn't pay us. And that they would look at that person and know in every part of their life, their integrity shines like the noonday sun. But instead, what was happening? They felt the need all the time, instead of saying yes and no, to give an oath to validate that they had been offended. The common phrase, I swear to God, 
should only serve as a reminder of what God really desires, that believers have such integrity that no confirmation is needed beyond a yes or no. You don't need to have a confirmation that involves God or involves nature or involves your dead grandmother's grave. But that the church would be known for a radical generosity, that the church would be known to step up and love other people. We refinanced our house and got out of an FHA loan to a conventional loan and we signed papers this last week with a notary and we invited the notary to church and she said, mm, I don't know, you just want my money. Oh, I long for the day. I long for the day when the church is known more for its radical generosity than to be a place where people bring gifts and honor God with the first or think that we're here to uplift causes. No, the nature of giving here is that we worship. We're not giving to a place, we're giving to a God. And as ones who are good stewards of what's given here, we tithe that away to those all around the world. But my heart and our culture is that the church, the people who make up a church, is not a building. This building, we leverage it for the good that God wants to do. We want to be the people, and I want for us to be known as those who are radically and intensely generous in our culture. Why? God's generosity, his gift to us, his love for us, gives you hope to persevere through your tough times. Stick it out, to hang in there, to put your trust in God and not your trust in the American way. We reveal that we remember God when we practice intense generosity to others. God, how do I show that I remember you? I remember you by being generous to those who are the least of these. As he has been generous to us, so we make inner judgments that result in generosity to poor believers. It's authentic faith, it's true religion, it's joyful intentionality because generosity breaks our greed. We should cry out, we should weep, we should wail, we should mourn, we should cry out to God. And in ways that we've been, injustice against us, when the workers of the fields, they shouted out to God, they were like, that was their cry out. That God hears, if you're in a moment where you are being oppressed, where you are being harassed, where you are like a sheep without a shepherd, when you cry out, God hears you and his compassion is engaged and he loves you. What's one thing you could do this week to leverage your surpluses in a way to bless a poor believer? And let me challenge you even further. I would challenge you to bless someone outside the United States. There's a million ways you could do it and you're creative. And if you don't know somebody, you can find out somebody who knows somebody. But what's one thing you could do to leverage your resources to be the love of Christ and part of the provision of Christ to those in need? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, no one distracting anybody else, but just in this moment it is a time of reflection. If today you realize I've never received, I've been too proud, I've never received the generosity of Christ, I've never received his offer of 
eternal life. I've never received his gift of forgiveness. I've never received, I've never allowed myself to receive for the fact that he died for my sin. If today you'd like to say yes to Jesus, to receive that and to offer your life, to submit yourself to him and he will clean your heart. He will give you a new heart. He will strengthen your heart and he will make you a new creation, the scriptures say. Then you pray a prayer to him. Just right where you're seated, you pray a prayer. Just repeat it like this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I couldn't earn it, but you were generous. That you were dead in the ground that you were raised to new life and that you are God. And so I ask you to make me a new creation, to forgive me of my sin and to give me eternal life. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand? Anywhere around the room, just heads bowed, eyes closed. We got some people, hold your hand up, just an awesome, greatest decision you could ever make. They're gonna make their way to you and give you some information about that decision you made. If you made that prayer and that decision today, you just raised up your hand, our friends will find you. They'll come and just give you some information. That's awesome, so good. Believers in the room, my hope is that the Holy Spirit had breakfast with you this morning and just wanted to talk to you about an area in your life. And will you just, as a way of response to him, will you affirm that you will do what God's Holy Spirit laid on your heart today? Will you just tell him I'll obey? Maybe he spoke to you about your possessions. Maybe he spoke to you about leveraging some things. Maybe he spoke to you that you've been grumbling and complaining. You haven't waited on him. You've looked for every other reason to validate your oppression. But will you just take a moment and say yes to him? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.